special edition of Her Story on the Rocks. Typically on a Thursday night, I would be sitting here with my co-host Katie and we would be drinking a couple cocktails talking about famous women from history. But sometimes we like to talk to women who are writing and adding to women's history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Nona Willis-Aronowitz. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm so excited. I am too. Nona is a writer, editor, and author who writes a sex and love advice column for Teen Vogue. And she is here to talk with us today about her new book, Bad Sex, Truth, Pleasure, and an Unfinished Revolution. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I consider myself a journalist first and foremost. Um, and I've had a lot of different beats in the past, but I keep coming back to the beat of gender and sexuality. Um, it's been a sort of a lifelong fascination of mine. Well, ever since I went through puberty, I guess. Um, <laughs> I love weaving history into my journalism and um, I often get inspired by what's going on in my own life. So this book is part memoir, part social history of the sexual revolution, and part work of journalism, because I did do a lot of reporting for it. So I'm kind of a hybrid writer. I love that. That's so interesting. When I was reading um, different bios about you online, I was like, this chick is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> so we made a cocktail for your book, um, and it's named after your book, Bad Sex, and we decided to do a take on the sex on the beach, but kind of make it a little raunchy. So we did vodka and peach snaps and cranberry juice, but then replaced the orange juice with um, vanilla Coca-Cola. So it really oh, wow. <laughs> it's great. So it tastes like um, a vanilla cherry Coke, and it's like a boozy cherry Coke and it's great. So cheers to you. Cheers to your book. Thanks. Hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting that you think of it as raunchy. I have no idea how people are going to take this book. I mean, I guess it can be sexually explicit, but there is a lot of other stuff in it. So I'm wondering how you said, I know you're the one interviewing me, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I loved it. So I think just as coca-cola as more raunchy than orange juice as yes. you know the same way as like the title being bad sex but the content of the book um is very personal and very historical yeah yeah it, I mean history is raunchy too oh, yeah. <laughs> there I I um was shocked again and again about how um vivid a lot of writing about sex was even 100 years ago 150 years ago 200 years ago even um all of the stuff that I looked at for this book you know kind of could have been written today with tweaks and a few slang words <laughs> that's incredible so let's dive into talking about your book you already addressed that it is kind of a braided narrative so can you set the scene for that a little bit how did you weave together this kind of memoirish part of your life along with the history of the sexual revolution? Sure. So before I go into my historical education, I have to mention that I was raised by someone who experienced and influenced the sexual revolution. My mother, Ellen Willis, who was a pretty prominent pro-sex radical feminist from the 60s and 70s, 
who was writing during this time, who was forming groups and doing activism during this time, and really had um, an impact on this time. <laughs> and so I've always grown up with a sense of feminist history. Um, but up until recently, I hadn't truly delved into what that history meant to me and how it had affected my life. Um, and this book actually comes out of a rather literal journey through history that I took right as I was going through a lot of personal tumult. I was getting a divorce. I was um, dealing with um, caretaking for my dad who had had a massive stroke. I was trying to figure out what I wanted and what made me happy. And I quite literally turned to history books. Like I spent time in the New York Public Library reading history to try to figure out what was going on with my present. I reread all my mother's work, but that led me to a lot of other second wave feminist work that doesn't often get um, reread, like the political celibates, like the radical lesbians, like um, the er very early pro-sex feminists, not to be confused with, with sex positivity that sort of came later and was a little bit less explicitly radical. Um, but then when I started to conceive of this book, I delved even further into history. I learned all about Emma Goldman and the sex radicals at the turn of the century. I learned about free love and the transcendentalists. I learned about all kinds of traditions of like women of color who had been um, writing about sexual freedom for decades and centuries. Um, and I learned a lot about how men figured into that and um, how they were dealing with um, the sexual revolution and feminism, this changing time in sort of the mid-century. And um, then I realized that I had sort of an arc to my own story that coincided with a lot of points of not only the sexual revolution, but feminist mm. history. That's incredible. What uh, were there any women or movements that really um, that really moved you as you were writing this book? Like, are there any anecdotes that you were like that really sticks out to me as something that like connects with me personally? Yeah. So, I read a lot of radical feminist literature that I hadn't read before because I kind of connected a lot of the radical lesbians from the 70s to the anti-porn movement, which I've always been very opposed to, but not all of them were that way. A lot of them were, um, were on board with the pro-sex message, although they had a lot of different caveats depending on where they came from. But the work of Cherie Moraga, for instance, um, um, Ruby Fruit Jungle, which is a novel by Rita Mae Brown, has always sort of been in my consciousness. But when I reread it for this book, it really sparked a new kind of um, sense of active pleasure seeking. I think that often queer history, just by nature of being um, about people on the margins, has this feeling of, of affirmative... Um, pleasure choosing, you know, like you, you are this person in a straight society, a straight supremacist society, and you're choosing happiness. You're choosing something that's different than the default. And 
people were writing about that a lot. And that was something I kind of missed the first time around when I learned about the radical lesbians. They were choosing to reject the toxicity of heterosexuality and they were choosing the joy of being lesbians. And I think that a lot of heterosexual people can learn from that, not from becoming lesbians, but affirmatively figuring out what they truly desire. Um, and if that's men, then that's wonderful. But um, you just have to kind of actively think about why men give you pleasure and men um, are the people that you want to love and live with. So that was a really moving um, moment for me to delve into that history. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that specifically in such a um, heteronormative society because it does seem like men are own sex, right? And own pleasure. That's their thing. And it's as if a lot of times women are a piece to the puzzle. And because of that, a lot of times, um, I think even gay men are over-sexualized, right? Like you're choosing this instead of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So I grew up um, in the 90s. So I'm like an older millennial. And I feel like the 90s was weirdly like into purity, right? Like the celebrities were all getting like purity rings and talking about saving themselves. And I remember growing up on sitcoms where it was always women making a joke about having a headache and not wanting to have sex, right? What are some ways that people and millennials in general or the younger age groups are changing the persona of sex? Well, it's interesting that you that you bring up purity culture because I always thought that that pure that particular purity culture that you discuss was very juxtaposed to sexualization. Weirdly, like yeah. Britney Spears was like very sexual, but then also talking about staying a virgin till marriage. Like Miley Cyrus was like pole dancing and also talking about her purity ring. Um, it was like a very confusing, weird, polarized time of like, either you were um, saving yourself from marriage or you were like a total slut. Um, And there were really very few nuanced portrayals of sexuality. I I think that what I've learned from the Teen Vogue readers, um, which I characterize as, they're like 14 to 22 usually. Um, So they're safely in Gen Z, I think. Yeah. The difference that I, first of all, I see a lot of similarities. They're asking the same basic questions that we were all asking, which is kind of comforting in a way. They're like, how do you tell somebody that you like them? Um, (laughs) Is there such a thing as casual sex? Or like, um, what does a penis in vagina feel like? Like very basic stuff that's just like, that, you know, really brings us, uh, keeps us on a continuum. But the differences I think is that um, a lot of them are like, I'm not that interested in sex. Is there something wrong with me? Mm. Um, More than I think our generation was willing to admit. I don't know if um, there are people who are more hesitant to have sex now, or they're just more um, open about being hesitant. But I think there are a lot of cultural factors that are making the latest generation um, a little bit trepidatious about dating and sex. I think part of it is internet porn, part of it is dating apps, part of it is um, this feeling of being able to say no, which is actually a good thing. I I felt like 
there were few avenues to admitting that you weren't ready for sex when I was younger. And I think that younger people are more empowered to say no. Um, but, and I think a lot of, a lot of women who um, grew up like sort of with feminism in the air and like the aughts, which is great in, on one level now kind of have like high expectations, but, but pretty bad experiences with dating and they're, and they're disenchanted with it. And a lot of them are opting out. Um, this is very kind of simplified, but I think that there are people talking more openly about opting out now in various ways. Hmm. And I mean, your book kind of also mentioned that more people, there's more ways to define people now. So people are kind of saying like, you know what, I am polyamorous. Like I, I am turning away from monogamy. Do you find that that's happening more often? Uh, definitely. I think that the last 10 years, polyamory and non-monogamy has, has gone much more mainstream. You see it on people's like dating app profiles all the time, but I, I still think it's somewhat misunderstood. Um, and also somewhat, um, misused. Like I think some people, a lot of people, including myself, I talk about this in the book. Um, I used that label as kind of an excuse for bad behavior and um, I still am non-monogamous in, in my new relationship, but um, I did kind of use it as an excuse to break the trust of my previous partner. Mm-hmm. I think that does sometimes happen where people are sort of like, oh, yeah, ethical non-monogamy, but actually they forget about the ethical part or they don't like totally know about the, the, the principles of it or one person is more into it than others than the other one. Um, So while I do believe that monogamy should not be the default and it's weird that it's the default and I think we should have a much more open discussion about polyamory, I don't think it is for everyone and I don't think it's easy. It's very, it's actually pretty, pretty hard to pull it off in a society that really privileges monogamy. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I also, there was a term uh, or phrase that you used that I was really interested in getting more of your perspective on. You talk about the heteronormative conveyor belt. And when I kind of read that phrase, to me, it's like ever since I was in college, it was, when are you getting engaged? When are you bringing him over? When are you getting married? When are you buying a house? When are you having kids? Are you having another one? Right? And it's like, if I had only girls, it's, are you going to try again for a boy? And to me, that's kind of the conveyor belt. What is your spin on that term? I mean, that sounds about right. I think that people assume that whatever relationship you're in, if it's like halfway decent, then um, they they openly speculate about your future. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of cultural incentives to doing so, to staying on the conveyor belt. There's a sense of acceptance. There's a sense of feeling taken seriously. Um, And I think, I mean, it is a wonderful thing to have um, somebody in your corner like that and to have, um, intense love every day, you know, with a partner, I love being partnered. I mean, like, I think I, it's a high priority of mine, but what I don't think should happen is people feeling like shit if they don't have that, or if they don't want that, um, or made to feel like a failure if they have a relationship that simply ends. I think that um, the marriage that I talk about in the book that I eventually ended, it was about an eight-year relationship that maybe should have been more like two years. Mm -hmm. And I 
stayed in it way, way, way too long for lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons was sort of the sunk cost fallacy of, well, I've been in this relationship for all these years. There might not be anybody else better. And I'm going to feel like a failure if I just give up. Um, and so that's what I think about. Uh, that's what I think of when I, when I say that term, the heterosexual conveyor belt is it's kind of hard to get off of it. And there's a lot of incentives to keep staying on there. Even though we talk about this progressive modern society that we have and that dating has been really different nowadays. And, and also people talk about like, Oh, nobody wants to commit. Like, that's not really true. A lot of people end up committing and it's not great for them. So I think people who romanticize commitment should look at what's going on in committed relationships. People aren't always happy. Absolutely. Um, my, my little sister, she lives with me. She's um, asexual, aromantic. And my parents feel so sad for her. They think like she can't find someone. And she's like, I'm not trying to right. find someone. So it's something I definitely connected with. Um, that phrasing in your book. It was great. Yeah. I mean, right in the middle of when I was um, writing the book, I read Angela Chen's book, Ace. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, I mean, even though I'm not asexual, obviously, like, according to the book, um, I did go through a period of not being interested in dating or having sex. And her book sort of helped me understand what was going on and helped me with self-acceptance. Like, I wasn't asexual in general but I felt asexual for a few months and um she has this chapter or this this passage about feeling like a bad feminist for not being overtly sexual um and that and how just how how unnecessarily how, how unnecessary that is in terms of putting pressure on young women if they don't feel like having sex, they don't feel like having sex, you know, and they're not like a bad feminist and they don't have like a boring personality. I thought that was really interesting too, that she was like being horny does not mean that you have a good personality or an interesting personality. And it's not like your personality is worse if you're less horny. Right. Maybe you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> so you um, have through growing up with your mom and through your years in journalism, have a lot of experience um, with talking about this really big nuanced topic. Was it hard for you at first to address this in a non-judgmental way? I would imagine that would be hard, you know, because like what's working for me would, would want to be the advice I would give to everybody, but that's not going to work for everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, I think that common denominator is to discover your desires even if that means that you don't have sexual desires or that they look different from other people's I think the first chapter is about the power of consciousness raising and just simply being honest out loud about whatever your desires are and it's not a qualitative test of what's good and what's bad it's just simply are you being honest and are you being conscious about your sexual and romantic choices. I think that that's the, basically the only universal thing in this book. Yeah. And then, and then the rest is just extremely varied. Right. Did your relationship with yourself change as you were writing it? I imagine writing mem like memoir pieces to a story make you really analyze your life with like a bird's eye view. Yeah. Um, it really 
made me call bullshit on myself a lot, which was pretty mortifying. But I think that's what happens when you write memoir, where you have this story that you tell yourself about yourself. And um, you have this kind of reputation among your friends and family about who you are, you know? Um, And then you have like journal writing that you can even see yourself telling that story in your journals, or at least I could. Um, And when you sit down to, to write a memoir that's going to be candid and that's going to be super honest, you have to sort of break down that story a little bit and just um, fact check yourself. Um, And I think that my editors helped me do that. And my partner, you know, read some of these things and, he was very much like, is that quite you? I don't know. Is, or is that like shtick you? Um, so that was something that was very humbling about the process. I, I mean, I imagine, yeah. Like I was going to ask if you um, asked people questions about yourself, right? Because the history part, you can do research. You can interview people. You know, you're a journalist. You're a professional journalist. You know how to do that. But then when it's about yourself, it's like, well, did it really happen that way or did it happen that way in my head? I know, it's weird. I mean, I won't ever know, especially the stuff about my parents. Both of them are now not with us. Mm -hmm. So I'm the only one who knows what it was like to be in my nuclear family. And I might be romanticizing it. I might be totally forgetting stuff. I wish I could interview both of them about it. Um, and I can't, you know, so I'm going to be an unreliable not narrator there because like kids, what do they know? Or like they have, you know, I have bad memories at this point of like, I have some memories, but I don't know how accurate they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did ask, yes, I did ask my friends between like when I was having an affair right before my divorce, during my divorce, the period of time right after my divorce, I did sort of interview my friends about what they remembered me being like. Hmm. And a lot of people reminded me sort of what my vibe was, which was great. I mean, I have a lot of diary writing from that time too. And I was, you know, sort of manic. Like, I don't know if you've ever been through a huge breakup, but I see the world divided between people who have had a huge, intense, heartbreaking um, divorce or breakup and people who haven't, you learn so much about yourself and um, you really like strip down yourself to this nub of raw emotion. And it's, it's, it's a trip. It's very striking. Um, it was awful and, but also great at the same time. And um, I don't regret it, but it was, a, it was a crazy time when I was, you know, maybe not that easy to be around and not that great of a friend. <laughs> Right. So when people sit down to read this, like it's, it's coming out like in like a couple weeks, what do you want them to walk away with? Like they've sat there, they're sitting on the beach, they're flipping the pages, they get to the end. How do you want them to feel? What do you want them to relate to? It's the heterosexuality chapter, actually. When I actually make a list of what I desire about men and it was a really difficult kind of not intuitive thing to do to really spell out my desires in a very specific graphic way, (laughs) but it was lovely. It was this like lovely thing to just be like, wow, I have these really vivid 
and earnest desires. And I hope that people will do the same. They don't have to do a literal list, but I want them to think deeply about what really truly has made them happy in the past and what would make them happy that they don't have. Um, and to not push away those thoughts and to understand that that's actually kind of a political project. It's not just like, um, you know, for personal development. It's also a huge part of sexual liberation, which is, in my opinion, an an indispensable part of the feminist project. Um, But I also want people to come away with um, a little self-forgiveness of knowing that you're never going to find the sexual holy grail and things are always going to be changing and slipping out of your grasp. And that's just how things are. And that's okay. Well, this has been amazing. Can you tell everybody when your book comes out, where they can find you, where they can find other things that you have written and follow you on your socials? Sure. It comes out August 9th. I'm super excited. I'm going to have a reading in Brooklyn at Books Are Magic on August 10th. And then I'm going to have another reading upstate in Woodstock on August 14th. I'm also going to have a virtual conversation with Ann Friedman through Skylight Books on August 17th. All of those links are at my website, theothernwa.com. Um, and that's also my handle on Instagram, theothernwa. And I'm Nona at Twitter. So you can find me at any of those places. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for writing this book and for kind of going through this both personal and historical journey so that we can kind of read along with you and hopefully discover more about ourselves. (laughs) Me too. I I hope that people um, get a lot out of it. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye